This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. If I were to ask you to describe yourself, what would you say? Would you talk about your height, your hair color, your gender, your nationality, your race? Maybe, not surprisingly, the answer to that question varies depending on who you are, how you grew up, and what's important to you. Interestingly, it also varies depending on what you're doing at the particular moment when you're asked the question. In other words, at certain times of day, I might feel more white than I do at others. This variation, feeling more or less something at different points in time, is known in the world of psychology as salience. And the subject of salience is one that is getting a lot of attention these days. My guest on Fordham Conversations today is Tiffany Yip. Yip is an assistant professor of psychology at Fordham, and for the last several years she's been looking at ethnic self-identity among teenagers, both how it develops in the long term and how it varies over shorter periods of time, that is, salience. Most recently, she and her colleagues have been working on a study with New York City high school students. Later today on the show, we'll look at South Asian ethnic identity and the quest for love in New York City. But first, Tiffany Yip joined me in the studio earlier this week to talk about her work. Tiffany Yip, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So tell me about ethnic identity. What does that mean in a scientific context? Um, ethnic identity is how one thinks about him or herself in the context of one's ethnicity or sometimes in terms of one's race. And a lot of times it's connected to the heritage of your family and your ancestors and, and where they came from and uh, their cultural background. For psychologists, what does it mean more specifically? For psychologists, it's how one forms a meaning what does it mean to be a member of a particular racial ethnic group? So for example, for me, I'm um, Chinese American. So what does that mean to me on a daily basis? What does it mean to be a Chinese person in the United States? What kinds of things might come up for you in terms of thinking about that? Identity comes up in terms of thinking about one's um, position in society, right? So a lot of the U.S. is very race and ethnicity, very socially significant constructs um, in the United States. So what does it then mean to sort of navigate the world knowing about your heritage and then also responding to people when they, when they sort of might treat you a certain way because of the way you look or the languages that you speak or the heritage of, of your family? How did you become interested in looking at ethnic identity? Yeah, I became interested in the topic, actually, um, from my own experiences, being an Asian American growing up in different parts of the country. So I was born in California, and then we moved to Illinois, and then we moved to Dallas. And then around seventh grade, for me, our family actually moved back to Asia, so we moved to Hong Kong. So for me, it was about constructing a sense of who I was in these various contexts. So what does it mean to be an Asian person in Dallas versus being an Asian person in Asia? And what are the different meanings behind that? And, and what does it feel like to be an Asian person in these different contexts? So that's really when I started to think about, well, this is really interesting how, how your context really shapes how you form a sense of who you are. And um, that's how I became interested in thinking about identity. And you do a lot of stuff about how young people form their identities, their senses of who they are. 
Yeah. A lot of the research in psychology suggests that adolescence is a particularly important time for identity development in general. Kids develop a sense of hobbies sports or arts and crafts and things like that. And so race ethnicity is just one piece of that. And so there's been a lot of theory written about adolescence as a really important time for thinking about these issues. And race ethnicity is just a piece of that. And that's why a lot of our research focuses on that particular um, developmental period. What about for little kids? Little kids is interesting because they certainly think about race at a very, very early age. I mean, research suggests that kids as young as three and four will talk about race. Um, And so the question is, at what point does this concept of race then become part of one's identity? And so it's definitely there for young kids. They notice it, they think about it, they talk about it, but whether or not it actually becomes a part of who they are and how they think about themselves, I think there are certain cognitive processes that have to happen between childhood and adolescence and maybe even young adulthood that make that thinking about race, more about a thinking about me in terms of race. You talk a lot about this concept um, called salience. What does that mean and why is it important? Salience is a way of thinking about how identity matters for people in your daily life. So basically what it is, it's the psychological significance of race ethnicity at a particular point in time. So one example that I like to use a lot in talking about what salience is, is for me as a Chinese American, being in Chinatown makes my race ethnicity very salient because I'm surrounded by Chinese people, food, language, culture, and so that makes the Chinese part of who I am very salient. And on the other hand, as a woman, which is another part of my identity, that becomes very salient to me when I take my car into the shop, right? Because it's a very sort of male type of environment. You know, the mechanics are typically male, the service advisors are typically male. So when I'm in that kind of setting, I don't think so much about race ethnicity, but I think a lot about gender. And so salience is this way of capturing how the different parts of your identity are more prominent or less prominent at different points in in your life, depending upon your context, where you are, who you're with. And as you can imagine, race, racial, ethnic identity salience, um, for most people tends to be especially salient when you're with family members, right? Because that they tend to be really the source of your, your race ethnicity. And so a lot of times you'll find that that family seems to, being around family seems to make race ethnicity more salient. It's interesting, the example of taking your car into the shop versus being in Chinatown, because they're kind of different situations, one of which you're surrounded by people who are like you, with the characteristic that you're talking about. And the other one, you become very aware of being a woman because you're surrounded by people who aren't like you. Do you find that's true in a lot of ways of this uh, ethnic salience? I think that's very true, and, and, the def- and the research definitely supports that idea. So one of the other things that the research suggests is when you're the only person of color or you're the only minority in a particular setting, your race ethnicity becomes very salient to you. So if you're the only person of a particular minority group in a predominantly um, homogenous setting, 
then that too also makes your your race ethnicity very salient. And I think it's true for other identities. I mean, I, I talk a lot about race ethnicity because that's what I study, but I think it's true for gender. I think it's true for things like age, um, maybe even professional identities, religious identities. I think it carries over to other identities, but I just happen to study race ethnicity in particular. Before we go on, tell me about your work, about the studies you've done. The study, one of the studies we're working on now is really excited about it, is a study with ninth graders in New York. Um, they all attend public high schools in New York. And it's a study of ethnic identity among African American, Asian American, Latino, and um, white European ninth graders. And we're following them for the next three years. And in this study, what we're trying to do is we are trying to see how kids' daily experiences of race ethnicity then translate into a sense of racial ethnic identity. So how do these experiences, these daily experiences of salience, then translate into a sense of stable, I am African American or I am Asian American? How do those then translate into a stable sense of self? And so in this study, we uh, use a combination of annual surveys. So we give them surveys twice a year. But in addition to that, we give each of the kids cell phones and we randomly page them five times a day on the cell phones. And when we page them, they open up a web survey and they fill out a survey on the spot. So essentially what we get is reports of kids' daily lives as they're living their lives. So they're Sometimes they're on the subway when we beat them, they're at home, or they're, you know, in the library, hanging out with friends, they're, they're doing their daily life, which is one of the really fun things about this technique, is that you're not giving them surveys in the laboratory or in the school, but you're actually giving them surveys, you know, in, in their everyday lives. So, um, so the idea is to see how these experiences in their daily lives translate into thinking about themselves as racial and ethnic beings, individuals. What kinds of questions do you ask in the survey? We ask them things like who they're with at the time that we beat them, what they're doing, how salient their race ethnicity is, how salient their gender is, how salient their age is, how they feel about themselves. Are they feeling happy, sad, anxious, depressed, those sorts of things. Just out of curiosity, is it like on a scale of one to five, how Chinese do you feel right now? I mean, how do you ask these questions and how do people respond to them? Let's kind of what it's like essentially because um, the surveys are done on the web so and because we're asking them them to do it several times a day they have to be pretty quick so the surveys take about two minutes to complete each time so they have to be pretty um, easy to fill out and so they tend to be things like on a scale of one to five on a scale of one to seven how much are you thinking about your race ethnicity right now I want to talk about other research on ethnic and racial identity. Most of it focuses on identity sort of as a stable thing that develops over time and doesn't really change. It's also really dynamic, though, as we've been talking about here. Tell me about why that hasn't been studied more and also what you're finding. One of the contributions to the literature that we'd like to make with these studies is really making that connection between the stable components of identity and the dynamic components, which we're calling salience. So how is it that these daily life interactions then translate into these stable um, notions of identity? And that's why um, we've designed the study the way it is designed, where you have 
you know, multiple assessments, multiple surveys within a day, but then you do it over a three-year period. So you can really see the connection between these everyday life experiences and how identity develops over time. And so, um, so one of the things that we're trying to do is really draw the connection between the ways, the two ways in which identity has been conceptualized, one dynamically and one stably, and that hasn't quite been done yet in the literature. Tell me, how, how old are these kids when they start doing the surveys? Um, they're ninth graders this year, this past year, so they'll we'll follow them for three years. And optimistically, if we can get funding, we'd like to follow them for a couple years more into college and things like that. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. I'm talking this morning with psychologist Tiffany Yip about teenagers, race, and self-identity. In a few minutes, we'll hear about one point of intersection between self-identity and love in Jackson Heights and Manhattan. But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Tiffany Yip. So if you're a little kid and you're just starting to think about who you are, um, how does your sense of, of ethnic and racial identity, how does that develop over time as you become an adult or, I guess, a teenager? Yeah, a lot of the research has suggested things like um, parents and how parents talk to you about race ethnicity is seems to be very influential for how kids start thinking about race. So, you know, it's things like your parents taking you to the museum, right, or um, having magazines or books around the house or taking you to movies, things like that, where they're really starting conversations about race ethnicity and trying to instill usually sense of pride um, in, in your racial ethnic group. And there's also certainly less pleasant types of interactions, such as things like peer discrimination that um, revolve around race. And so, you know, being picked on or being called names in school, those sorts of experiences also sort of trigger kids thinking about race, ethnicity. Um, you know, sort of interpersonal things, maybe even experiences and interactions with teachers where certain kid, you might notice certain kids get called on more in class or are sent to detention more and those sorts of things. Um, so, so it seems to be very sort of social and the social interactions that you have with peers, other adults, family members, and things like that that really start to trigger kids thinking about these issues. How does the long-term development of, like, of your sense of ethnic or racial identity, how does that differ from the kind of salience stuff that you look at? It's really just a matter of time, I think, in thinking about the long-term versus salience. I mean, salience is really something that you capture at a particular moment in time. It's sort of fleeting. It's sort of dynamic. So it's there one minute, and it's gone the next, right? So when I leave the mechanics, I'm not my gender is no longer a salient. Or when I leave Chinatown, I might not be thinking about being Chinese as much anymore. And so it's a very sort of fluid way of thinking about oneself. Whereas ethnic racial identity really is more of something that you carry with you, just like you carry something like self-esteem. Do you, on average, tend to have high self-esteem versus low self-esteem? That sort of thing. So it's something that's a little bit more stable over time relative to salience, which is something that, that comes and goes very quickly. Why do you find children and teenagers interesting for study? The reason why we focus on children and teenagers is because that's really when the 
sense of identity is developing. So there's certainly been research on racial ethnic identity among adults. But that research tends to show more stability in racial ethnic identity, whereas if you look at younger age periods, you're really capturing the identity as it's changing, as it's developing. And so it's really sort of trying to catch the development of of identity as it's occurring as opposed to when it's already been formed. Are the kinds of situations where adults find these things salient, are they different from the ones where teenagers do? Um, I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I imagine that for me in 20 years, if I'm in Chinatown, is that different for me than when I was in Chinatown five, 10 years ago? So I'm not sure that salience is different for um, younger individuals versus older individuals. But I do think that different things trigger sort of the meaning of identity for different age groups. So for example, the research suggests that identity becomes much more stable as people get older, right? So your sense of self is just more well-developed. It's more stable. Fewer things are going to, you know, shatter it or, or make you question it. So if someone calls you a name or racial slur when you're an older adult, you have coping mechanisms for dealing that. When you're 12 and someone calls you a name, that really might then start a search for thinking about race versus ethnicity. And so I think that these sort of interactions um, maybe have different meanings at different ages, but I think salience itself and I'm, this is just a guess because there's not research on this, but I, I'm guessing the things that trigger salience are probably similar over the lifespan. There's a term that I came across while I was looking at your work that I was curious about. What is a stereotype threat? Stereotype threat is a body of research um, that's gained a lot of momentum in the past couple of decades. And it's really this anxiety that one has in confirming a negative stereotype about one's group. So if there's a negative stereotype, the, the, the origins of the research look at African-Americans. So there's this negative stereotype that African-Americans aren't very smart. And so the research suggests that if you sort of trigger that stereotype, the anxiety about fulfilling it, about making that stereotype true is enough to actually make African-American students do more poorly on tests than they otherwise would if that stereotype's not triggered. So you can take, um, you know, a group of students and one for one group, you trigger this negative stereotype. They're going to do much more poorly than the other group for which you didn't trigger the stereotype. So it's not a matter of ability, right? The ability is there. It's this anxiety about fulfilling a negative stereotype about your group. And so the way this relates to my research is that when you trigger a negative stereotype about one's racial ethnic group, you're also making that group salient. So essentially when you're saying, when you're sort of affirming a stereotype, you're also making that group that the stereotype's about, in this case race ethnicity, salient. So the person has to think, oh, I'm a member of that group, therefore the stereotype applies to me and then that makes them anxious and underperform. So if your race or ethnicity is, is salient at a particular moment, that can be a good or a bad thing. Certainly true. That's certainly true. It can be. It can have positive consequences and it can have negative consequences, as in the case of stereotype threat. What are some of the positive consequences? It's interesting because 
there is a research study done with Asian American women, and this was a study done by Margaret Shi at the University of Michigan, and she had a group of Asian American women. And so Asian American women are interesting because as women, they have the negative stereotype about doing well in math. But as Asian individuals, there's a positive stereotype that they should do well in math. And so what she found was that when you triggered the, when you sort of made salient their gender stereotype, as you would expect, they underperformed on the math math tests. But if you then made salient their Asian identity, then they actually perform better. And so it's an interesting case there of both seeing sort of benefits of salience and also seeing some of the, the detriments of it in the same group. In the research that you've been doing, I know you're just starting out on this project, but in general, what is the most striking thing that you've found? Um, I think the most striking thing that we've found, considering these are ninth graders, of course they're living in New York, which is one of the most diverse places in the world, is the, the sophistication to which they think about race, ethnicity. I mean, they're very sophisticated when they think about these things. And so in some ways, I think sometimes researchers sort of underestimate the complexity to which these issues, and they're certainly complex issues. We know they're complex issues. But to, to recognize that, you know, youths at this age sort of understand some of that complexity is, is very striking. Again, I know you just started on this, but do you have any predictions as to the conclusions that you guys are going to find? It's kind of hard to make predictions, one, because the way that we're doing this study hasn't been done yet. And the only group for which I feel more comfortable making predictions is the Asian American group, because I've done similar studies with with Chinese um, adolescents. And basically what we found there was that for adolescents who have a really strong and positive sense of racial ethnic identity, when their ethnicity is salient, they also report feeling better about themselves. So, you know, if I have an adolescent who says, I feel great about Chinese, I love being Chinese, it's important to who I am, and I feel very good about it. When you beep them at a time when their identity is very salient, so they're feeling very Chinese at that particular point in time, they also report feeling more positive about themselves in general. So I expect that we'll find something similar to that again in, in the current data set. But it's also possible to have a very strong sort of negative ethnic identity so that when you're thinking about being Chinese or whatever, you're feeling quite bad. Yeah, I think that's very possible. Although that group just tends to be smaller on average. I think if you look at that some of the research, it tends to show that people either, in general, if you look at the average, it tends to be very high. People in general tend to have very strong positive feelings. There's certainly a group where people do feel bad about it. Um, it tends to be a smaller group. And so it's it's harder to sort of find that, um, it's harder to identify a group of kids like that unless you have a really, really large sample and then you might be able to find a handful of them. But it just tends to be a smaller group on average. I suppose if you felt very bad about your ethnic identity, you would just try not to think about it all that much and you'd have other interests. Right, yeah, I think, I think just human nature, if, if there's a certain part of who you are that you don't feel good about, you probably find other um, identities that you feel more positive about and sort of focus your energies there. Uh, one more question. I'll close with this. 
Why is this something that we in the non-academic world should care about? Well, for one, I think that just living in the United States and and the recent presidential election sort of brings us to, to mind is, is that race and ethnicity are very, very important and very, very salient um, ways in which we think about people in the society and the way we think about ourselves in society. And so I think it has really important implications just for everyday interactions with people. And because ethnic identity itself has been shown time and time again in research with different age groups, different racial ethnic groups, to have really important um, associations with things like mental health and physical health. So it does really seem to um, have important associations with health in general. And so I think that, you know, one, it's just so salient in our everyday interactions with each other, and two, that it has important health implications. I think those are two really um, key reasons why why it, it should be an interesting thing for not just the academic world, but for, for people in general. Well, Tiffany, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you very much. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Ahead this morning on Cityscape, revisiting the Stonewall riots 40 years later. That's Cityscape with George Bodarkey this morning at 7.30 on WFUV. First, though, we'll leave you with this story of young New Yorkers looking for love as they try to stay true to their own distinct ethnic identities. As we know, New York is full of sharp contrasts. Stepping off the subway in one neighborhood is an immersion in traditional culture. Getting out at a different stop is an experience in the ultra-modern. And this contrast is as present with love as with anything else. This winter, producer Liz Brockland explored one such contrast, and she filed this report. As you walk down 74th Street in Jackson Heights, you see saris hanging in the store windows and displays of wedding jewelry everywhere. If you're looking for traditional Indian products, this is the place to come, and these businesses rely on traditional weddings to survive. One of these businesses, Malankar Jewelers, specializes in wedding jewelry sets. Emil Patel is the store's manager. For a traditional Indian wedding, a jewelry consists of a necklace set, bangles, earring, and with tikka, rings, everything, the whole nine yards. Patel says the jewelry set is an important part of the tradition. A bride wears a lot of jewelry, and she takes all that jewelry from her father, and when she gets married, she takes those jewelry to her new home and that jewelry is a kind of insurance for her that when she breaks up the marriage she can cash in this jewelry and still live the livelihood. Surrounded by stores full of bright clothing and restaurants with sauces and meat steaming in the window, you can feel the presence of traditional culture. But only a short trip on the 7 train away, young South Asians are meeting potential mates in strikingly modern ways. On a frigid Sunday night in December, about two dozen singles squeeze into the People's Lounge on the Lower East Side for a night of Indian speed dating. They stand around before the event begins, twirling straws in their cocktails and mingling. For some, it's new and exciting. For others, it's nerve-wracking even the second time around. You know, you only get one to three minutes with each girl. <laughs> and I, I thought, you know, that, that, that's like an impossible task. You know, how are you going to impress somebody three minutes? Some people can't impress a woman in, like, a lifetime. <laughs> That's Lohit, a Sri Lankan who says he's just trying to find love. 
Others say they're here to meet people who share their cultural values. And for some, it's a plus for their parents, too. I actually told my dad right before I was about to come here that I was going speed dating. First reaction was, you're going speed dating? Then I said, I'm going to an Indian speed dating. And all of a sudden, he was like, OK, great, good luck, have fun. That's Mandy, a 31-year-old lawyer from Queens. She says she wants to meet someone who understands where she's coming from. Wow. Um, Indian in New York. Someone who has a mix of both cultures is very, very important to, I think, most kids that have grown up in this culture. Um, having the family values, which is very core to being Indian, versus American families, which are very, you know, you're 18 and you're out of the house. And still having the freedom to do what we want to do, which is a mix of the American culture. That mix is a small piece of something larger that's going on in New York's immigrant communities. Madhulika Kandelwal is the director of Asian American Studies at Queens College. She says that for young South Asians in New York, being South Asian means something very different than it did for their parents. The interesting thing about the new generation is that I would say they are very consciously um, Indian or South Asian. But that's their ancestry. That's their ethnic identity. Um, their main primary basic identity is American. So they're Americans of that ancestry. Back in the Lower East Side, the evening of speed dating is wrapping up after two full hours. Some people are hurrying out, others stick around talking with newfound friends or potential second dates. They won't find out until tomorrow who their matches are. Lohit is excited and hopeful. He feels like he really connected with a lot of the women here tonight, but he's not taking any chances. I put down every girl. See, that? that's, that's just to stay on the safe side, you know what I mean? Because the girls, you know, they tend to be a little bit more selective, you know what I mean? So you got... So you never want to take a chance. No matter what your background is, it seems some strategies are universal, and all is fair in love and speed dating. For WFUV News, I'm Liz Brockland. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you missed part of the show this morning, or if you'd like to hear it again, you can find our podcast at WFUV.org, where you can also listen to past shows in our audio archives. You can email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. We would, of course, love to hear from you. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening, and have a wonderful weekend. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.